Well, please open your Bibles to James 1, 13 to 15. Again, that's James 1, 13 to 15. Theology. The word probably conjures up any number of thoughts or opinions to your mind. Uh, for some, those thoughts are, are positive. Theology simply means the study of God. And so when some consider the word, they think of many meaningful conversations with friends over the character of God, the nature of God. They think of, of quiet contemplations, of private meditations over ideas too wonderful to be grasped. They think of books that challenge the limit of their thinking, authors who exercise their brain by pushing them to think still deeper about God. For them, theology is life. It's synonymous with knowing the God who died for them. For others, the word is quite negative. When they hear the word theology, what they hear is dead orthodoxy, cold religion. Uh, Their only interaction with the word has revolved around bitter and contentious arguments among supposed brothers and sisters over seemingly unimportant minutiae. And so for them, the word represents a disconnect between belief and practice. The theologian is the one who thinks but does not do. The theologian is the one who ascends into his or her ivory tower to contemplate how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, all the while their brothers and sisters, their poor brothers and sisters, remain outside begging for food and clothing, and while the lost continue down the road to hell with no one to warn them. Theology is not a pleasant word to these brothers and sisters. To them, it represents represents everything that's wrong with the church. And neither side is entirely wrong. Yes, theological discussions can at times devolve into nothing more than a display of the participant's arrogance and pride. And yes, it's not uncommon for the one who's zealous for right doctrine to be so consumed for the truth that they never pause to examine the quality of their own life and whether or not it breathes the aroma of Christ. There are a lot of ways that theology can be done wrong. But all the same, whether you like it or not, absolutely everyone is a theologian. And what I mean by that is that everyone, absolutely everyone, has thoughts or opinions about the types of questions that theologians attempt to answer. It's just that some people are more intentional in seeking the answers to these questions than others. Uh, For some, their theology is quite random. They've approached the subject passively, and, and so their beliefs are nothing more than a hodgepodge of ideas that they've picked up from any number of different sources. Like the junk that accumulates underneath your couch cushions, you know, a a nickel that slipped out of your jeans past June, uh, a few crushed potato chips from a late night Netflix binge, uh, that missing Monopoly piece from the game night you had with your family last Thanksgiving. Uh, That's how some people collect answers to life's most pressing theological questions. You know, the unforgettable sermon they heard when they were nine, the piece of advice they once received from a parent or teacher, the witty movie quote, These all conspire together to form their theology. For others, the process is more intentional. They read systematic theologies. They search out sermons on some topic that they're wrestling with. They write down their thoughts in a notebook and periodically come back to review their notes later on. But however it's pursued, whether intentional or unintentional, absolutely everybody has some system of belief that answers these deeper questions about life, even if they aren't entirely sure the answer that they'd give. Let me give you an example. I shared this with you some last week. Say a a friend calls you up and asks you to meet for coffee. And you agree. When you arrive, they start unloading. You're both Christians and they have a sin that they can't get rid of. 
They've tried. They've prayed to God to take it away. They've spent time seeking answers in the Scriptures. They've memorized Bible verses, but it just won't seem to go away. What do you tell them? Understand, we're talking about a a very practical question, aren't we? This is no ivory tower thinking. This isn't mere theory. We're talking about something as basic as, how do I get rid of my sin? And yet, in order to answer that question, you're going to have to address a whole host of other theological issues that lie behind it. For example, let's start with something simple. What is sin? What is sin? Do you have a definition for it? Do you know what sin is? Because I have to say that from my experience, what I've learned is that a lot of times the reasons why people have questions is because they're starting with a false premise. Their problem would be solved if they just took the time to define their terms properly, but they never stop to do that. They never stop, for instance, to consider whether or not a thing that they're wrestling with is sin. And if they had, then they might see that what they're wrestling with is not sin, and they're distressed over nothing for no reason. So do you have a clear definition of sin in your mind? Or are you just going to accept the premise that they are in sin and go straight to trying to solve their problem without any further reflection? How about this question? Should they get rid of their sin? In other words, suppose it is sin. So what? What's saying they need to get rid of it? Now you may say, what are you talking about? It's sin. Of course they need to get rid of it. But understand, when you give that answer, you're addressing a theological issue. Not everyone would agree with you. Other religions, for instance, even some belief systems with Christian doctrines, they'll say no. You don't need to deal with that. The reason you're saying they, knew they, they do need to get rid of their sin is because you already hold to a system of belief regarding who the Christian is and what their role is in the world. Here's one more question. Can they get rid of their sin? They're coming into the conversation assuming they can. Is that true? And if they can, then how? how does, what, what does spiritual surgery look like? How does one go about removing the cancer that is called sin? That answer is dependent upon a whole host of other theological premises on subjects as diverse as the nature of man, the work of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Scripture, the power of prayer, the character of God. Point being, in order to answer this very basic, very practical question, you first have to establish what your theological beliefs are about a whole host of other issues. Now, it's possible you've never thought about your answer to these types of questions before, and even if you've had, you may not get into detail about all these issues as you talk with your friend, but at the same time, the answer you give is going to be based on your theology. And so you need to stop and take stock of what your theology is, because the answer you give to your friend is going to have a very practical impact. I mean, take the definition of sin. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the things that the Scripture define as sin are being reclassified in society as mental illness. Again, even secular people, people who are saying that, they have, that they're providing solutions to problems that they say have nothing to do with God, they're still addressing theological questions. And it comes out when they give answers to things like, how do I get rid of my sin? They'll redefine the terms. Depending on the issue, they might say it's not a sin, it's a disease, or even it's a genetic predisposition. And when they say that, the the implication is that it's something you can't be held responsible for. It's part of your hard wiring. It's something you can't change. Whether or not you agree with those definitions is going to make a dramatic impact on the type of counsel you give your friend. And if what you say is true, 
you'll help them. And if it's not true, you'll hurt them. You'll end up encouraging, uh, encouraging them to do things that won't work. You'll tell them to do things that don't correspond with reality. For the past several weeks, we've been studying and reflecting upon James 1, 13 to 15, and the question that we're trying to answer from this passage is, who is responsible for my sin? That's a very practical question. Knowing where my sin comes from tells me what I need to do to address it. And the answer would seem to be rather obvious at first. After all, I think we'd all recognize that we tend to do what we want to do. That our choices come from within us. And so that would mean that we are responsible for our sin. And James would happen to agree. He says here in verses 13 to 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The point very clearly seems to be that we are responsible for our own sin. We can't say that God forces us to do it against our will because God isn't like that. It's not just that He doesn't sin, it's that He's actually repulsed by it. It's unappealing in His eyes. And so we can know, James says, that God isn't going to force us to sin against our will. No, the reason why we sin, rather, is because we want to. The desires come from inside of us. They come from within ourselves, not without And then they lead us along first into sin and then into death. We're at fault. Again, that would seem to be a very straightforward and obvious answer. Who's responsible for our sin? Well, we are. The problem that arises is that there are Scripture passages that seem to point in the other direction. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He incites David to sin by taking a census. He plans and orchestrates the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I mean, the Scripture seems to indicate on multiple occasions that God is sovereign over, meaning He's in control of the actions of sinful men. How do we reconcile that with the answer that James gives here? That's the question we've been exploring from the Scriptures for the past couple of weeks. And what we've seen so far is that, yes, God does ordain the actions of sinful men, but He does so in a passive or indirect sense through the use of secondary agents or causes. Now, how He's able to do that without being culpable for the resulting sin, the Scripture never fully clarifies for us. It gives us glimpses into that dynamic here and there, but it never fully resolves the tension in that issue. It only tells us both that God ordains evil and that He is perfectly good. It tells us that God directs all things, and yet sin originates within ourselves. So then, does that mean that we are more or less in control of our relationship with God? Taking the issue back to your friend's question, can they get rid of their sin? They've said they feel like they've been trying but they can't seem to control the presence of these sinful desires that keep springing up inside. Is there anything that they can do about that? On one hand, the answer to that question would appear to be yes. This is what we examined last week. First, I asked the question, can the Christian do anything to improve their fellowship with God? And we saw that the Scriptures say, yes, they can. The Scripture tells us that God has established particular means for the Christian's growth, things such as prayer, and when the Christian pursues these means, there is expectation that they will grow. 
Now, this doesn't nullify the concept of grace, and I'll get into why I say that a little bit more today, but at the very least, I said that there are two parts to this equation. James says, draw near to God. Chapter 4, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Clearly, there's some aspect of grace in that. It isn't just that we go to God, but that he comes to us. So the improvement in relationship isn't entirely dependent on what we do. But all the same, the idea is still there. We draw near to God, and in return, we should expect that He will draw near to us. So yes, there is something we can do to improve our fellowship with God. That was the answer to our first question. And then second, I asked, is it always possible for the Christian to obey God? And I said that the Scripture's answer to this question, once again, is yes. Uh, There's nothing that's constraining the believer's obedience externally. In other words, no outside forces are coming in to prevent their obedience. Now, that's not to say that there aren't outside forces that may hinder one's obedience, perhaps in order to even test the Christian, and these forces can even be directed by God. But there are no outside forces that ultimately make the Christian sin. To quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And God promises us that we cannot be forced to sin against our will. Now, that being said, there was once a time where the believer was constrained to sin internally by their own desires. But this is true of the Christian no more. Paul says that in Christ we have received the Holy Spirit who sets us free from the law of sin and death, so we are no longer bound to obey our sinful desires as we once were before we came to know Christ. And this means that we are now truly free to obey God. There's nothing stopping us either externally nor internally. So once again, can your friend get rid of their sin? On one hand, the answer to that question would seem to be yes. But, then again, does that mean that perfect obedience is possible? That seems to be the other side of the coin if we're saying that it is always possible to obey God. If we can always obey God, then it would at least seem theoretically possible to attain perfect righteousness this side of heaven. We'll only need to choose to do it. And what about grace? I know I've said that there's grace in this idea of God responding to our obedience, but all the same, from what I've said so far, it would seem to place the majority of the burden on us. I mean, we have to choose God in our sanctification. And we will be sanctified only as so far as we make that choice. That seems to indicate that we, pri- we are primarily responsible for our sanctification, not God. And that seems to take grace mostly out of the equation. At the conclusion of last week's sermon, I said that we should be encouraged by the idea that we can improve our relationship with God, that we don't have to sit on our hands and wait. But at the same, at the same time, that idea can be kind of daunting as well, can't it? I mean, that kind of turns the pressure on. I mean, do you want to grow in your obedience to Christ? Then it's up to you. Get to work. And if you fail to pursue the means that God has given you, then tough. Don't expect God to bail you out. Your sin is entirely your fault, and you can expect to bear the consequences until you get your act together. That's what this can sound like. So how does this all come together? Go back to the coffee shop once again. Your friend is struggling to understand why they can't get rid of their sinful desires. What do you tell them? Do you say that they can't obey? 
that the reason they're struggling with their sin is because they're choosing to rebel against God, and if they just set their mind to it, then they could overcome their sin? I hate to tell you this, but not only does that present an unscriptural view of sanctification, but your friend is going to leave that conversation crushed if you say that to them. They've come to you discouraged and defeated, burdened by their sin, and all you've done is lay a bunch more weight on their shoulders. They're already struggling to understand why they can't seem to be free of their sin, and you've provided them with no answers. You've done nothing more than say to them, Wow, sounds like you're a real horrible sinner. I guess you better try to fix that. You've provided them with no hope, no solutions. You've just increased guilt. No, if you're going to help your friend, you need to point them to the grace of God in some way. But at the same time, if, if you say they can't obey, that the reason they're struggling with sin is because God simply won't let them obey, then you not only seem to go against what James is saying here in James 1, 13 to 15, and you not only seem to contradict everything that we talked about last week, but you crush their hope. They go away from that conversation thinking there's nothing they can do to rid themselves of the sin that's disrupting them from fellowship with God and keeping them from the blessing of righteousness. A couple of weeks ago, I compared James 1, 13 to 15 uh, to the hydra, which was this mythological creature that would multiply its heads every time you managed to cut one of its heads off. Well, the dilemma here is a bit like another mythological account. In the Odyssey, the hero Odysseus must sail through a narrow strait with two monsters on either side. The first, Scylla, is a six-headed monster with 12 feet and three rows of teeth. The second, Charybdis, creates a powerful whirlpool which will sink every ship that comes near it and everyone else and everyone on board. The strait is so narrow that an archer can shoot across it. And so Odysseus has to make a choice. There's no way he can avoid both creatures, so he has to decide which one to take on. Well, rather than risk his entire crew, he chooses to cross near to Scylla, sacrificing several of his men in the process. That's what this situation with your friend can feel like. It seems there's no way to come out of it completely clean. You either have to burden them with guilt and frustration, or you have to tell them there's no hope. But there's another way. There is a way to navigate through this narrow and dangerous strait. It is possible to say you can take steps to improve your fellowship with God without undermining the grace of God in sanctification. How does that work? I think the best way to answer that question is by starting with another theological question. I've said that it is always possible to obey God. So, question number one for today. Why can't we be perfect? Why can't we be perfect? Again, I spent a lot of time last week saying that God has already given us everything necessary to be obedient, so you can choose to obey. It's within your power, your ability, by virtue of the Holy Spirit residing in you. So, if that's the case, then why won't you? Why would I still stand up here and say, you will not be perfect this side of glorification in heaven? It's not going to happen. And there are two answers to that question. The first answer we've already referred to several times over the past several weeks, and that's the flesh. Last week I said that while the unbeliever is free to obey God in the sense that there are no external forces restraining them from obedience, at the same time they are never inclined to obey on account of the sin nature that we've all inherited from Adam. They're bound to sin internally, 
by the desires of their sinful flesh. Well, when a sinner turns to Christ, this, this bondage is removed by the Holy Spirit who transforms a sinner's desires so that they love God and want to obey Him. They are therefore, for the first time in their life, truly free to obey God in every sense of the word when they believe on Christ because the Spirit frees the will from its bondage to sin. Again, we covered this last week. However, what I didn't get to then is the fact that the Christian still possesses this sin nature even after conversion. And it's something that they're going to possess until the time of their death and glorification. Uh, Paul appears to tie the demise of the sinful flesh with the death of the body in Romans 7 and 8. He says, Romans 7, uh, 21 to 23, Uh, He says, So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, and that's uh, kind of a reference to the body. He says, "I I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He then concludes in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As he gets into Romans 8 and speaks of the creation being subjected to bondage until the time of Christ's return, he speaks of the redemption of our bodies in the same way. He says, verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says earlier in chapter 8 that we've already received the spirit of adoption, the spirit who testifies to the fact that we are children of God through its constant warring with the flesh. Here he says that adoption will be complete when our bodies are redeemed. So just as the creation groans inwardly to be freed from that which enslaves it and so looks to the coming of Christ, we too in the same way look forward to the day when we will be freed from the passions that enslave us, the redemption of our bodies. And so there appears to be some kind of connection between the sin nature and this fallen flesh such that Paul connects the cessation of sin with the death of the body. Now, how this connection works isn't entirely clear. At least not to me. It probably is clear to Paul uh, and perhaps to others as well who have spent more time studying the matter, but I still haven't figured this out yet myself. I mean, if you can think of it this way, we, we know that man is essentially made up of two constituent parts. There is the body, and then there is the soul or the spirit. Uh, in other words, there is the material part of man, there's a physical component, and then there's a spiritual immaterial component. And the most essential part of a man is the spiritual immaterial component, and this is demonstrated by the fact that the spirit can be separated from the body, and when it is, it's said that he, the person, is where the spirit resides. Paul speaks of death as parting from the body in order to be with Christ, for instance, in Philippians 1.23. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says that he would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So once again, there's a material and immaterial component to mankind, and the most essential element of a person is the immaterial. Although, and this is an important although, the two were designed to coexist together. When Paul speaks of the soul departing from the body in 2 Corinthians 5, he speaks of it as a kind of nakedness. The spirit can exist apart from the body, but it's not natural. It's designed to inhabit flesh. When the scripture refers to the mind or the heart, 
it tends to associate this aspect of the person with the immaterial component, the spirit or the soul. And so while there's a physical component to a man, which would include things such as the brain, at the same time the inner person, the spirit, is where the Scripture would assign things such as the will. That aspect of your being that causes you to make decisions. Of course, that's not to say that there's no interplay between these two, the the material and the immaterial. The body certainly processes information for the spirit. It is the means through which the spirit interacts with the temporal creation. And there's certainly such a strong connection with the brain and the spirit that we would tend to say that once the brain stops, the spirit has departed. The brain, therefore, somehow functions uniquely as the seat of the soul in the body. You can almost call it the organ of the soul. But at the same time, not even the brain is synonymous with the soul. When we speak of the mind or the heart in Scripture, it's often processed through the organ we call the brain, but it is still, in a sense, above it, distinct, and set apart from it. Now, the the reason why I say all this is because we have to understand that when we sin as Christians... It's an expression of our spiritual selves. And so it's not as if we possess an inner person called the Spirit, who's completely free from the power of sin, while at the same time sin is at work in the members of our body, and then the two conspire together to direct the will, either towards sin or obedience, depending on which side it's yielded to at the moment, as if the will was somehow something above or distinct from either the body or the Spirit. No, the will is an expression of the spiritual, immaterial part of a person. Of course, the body is certainly capable of influencing that aspect of the person, but when a person sins, it's still an expression of their spiritual self. And yet somehow there's still this connection between the inner sinful nature and the body such that Paul envisions the death of this indwelling sin with the death of the body. Again, I don't know how that works. But the point here is that all the Christian has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. There is still another principle at work within them and at work at the spiritual level in the mind, which is actively working to pull them away from obedience to God. And this principle will be at work in them until the day they die. There's nothing they can do to separate themselves from it. And so try as they might, they will always sin. They're going to continue to do that because of this flesh that resides within them. That's the first answer for why we will not be perfect this side of heaven. The second answer is knowledge. Or to state the the issue negatively, which I think is a more accurate way of stating it, ignorance. You see, when mankind fell into sin, it wasn't just their bodies that was corrupted. Again, it was their spirits was their minds. And Paul, for instance, exhorts Christians in Ephesians 4 to repent of their former lifestyle by saying, verses 17 and 18, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, he says, Now this I say and testify to the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, now pay attention to the language there. Paul says that the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. He says that they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. There's a, there's a darkening of the mind that's taking place here, and the result is separation from, mankind, uh, separation from God. 
Keep that in mind. I want to come back to that. So, so where does this ignorance come from? Paul says it is, quote, due to their hardness of heart. Again, man's problem is, is primarily spiritual. It's the will that's the problem. And so as man exercises this will by rebelling against God, he makes himself ignorant of God. He darkens his understanding. To paraphrase Romans 1, man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And the result is that man became, quote, this is Romans 1, futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the sinful flesh causes man to run away from God in a fury. And the result, if I could put it this way, is that man ends up good and lost without any way for him to find his way back home. That's what Paul means when he says that Gentiles are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Their hard heart pushed them away from God, it suppressed the truth, and the end result is that their understanding of God has become so darkened that they wouldn't even be able to find Him if they wanted to. I mean, you see this truth displayed all over the world today. A man has all these religions that he's made up to try to replace God. And while there are elements uh, to these religions that proclaim truth, at the end of the day, they're all lies. They're false. Man is so darkened in his understanding that he's unable to find his way back to God, which is why Paul says that preachers need to be sent to proclaim the gospel in Romans 10. No one's going to figure out how to be saved on their own. Their mind is too dark. They need to be told. Well, guess what, Christian? You came out of that. That's you. There was a time when you too were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in you due to the hardness of your heart, but then someone came and shared Christ with you. And so so now you're no longer alienated from God. You have the knowledge of the truth. The problem, though, is at the same time, this knowledge is not yet complete. You go back to Jeremiah 31, and God promises that in the New Covenant, we'll no longer have need for teachers because we'll all be taught of God. Clearly, we're not there yet, right? I'm, I'm standing up here and giving you a theology lesson because you don't know everything. I don't know everything. Our minds are still influenced by the, the theological lives, lies of this fallen world. So let me tell you why that matters, this understanding of knowledge and ignorance and how that comes to play. Uh, this matters because the flesh thrives, the sinful nature that we just talked about, the flesh thrives on deception. Author and pastor Scott, Scott Christensen states the matter well. Referring to Paul's description of his struggle against sin in Romans 7, Christensen writes in his book, What About Free Will? He says, Paul laments, this is so quoting him here, Paul laments, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The knowledge of moral truth informs the conscience and compels us to obey its precepts, but the vestiges of the old sin nature still still sting. On the one hand, Paul wants to obey and has every good intention of doing so, but sin rears its ugly head and shapes another set of desires so that Paul ends up choosing what he hates. This is a conflict of desires. And the prevailing evil desire too often wins out. But why? Isn't Paul adamant in saying that he has the desire to do what is right? Why does he practice the very evil that he does not want to do? It sounds like he's acting contrary to his desires. On the surface, he sounds like a libertarian. 
But consider the uniqueness of conflicting desires in which one desire is appealing and the other is decidedly unappealing. As a Christian finds sin unappealing, whereas godly behavior is appealing, all things being equal, he would never choose to sin. He says, so what is happening? Christensen says this. He says, in order for sin to make itself appealing and thus incite a stronger desire to act on it, it must deploy the weapon of deception. This is the key to understanding Paul's dilemma. In Romans seven eleven, he says that sin deceived me. He says the power of sin lies in its subterfuge. It tempts us to think that if we engage in what it promotes, then it will benefit us. The young man may look at that tempting ad on the otherwise innocuous internet site. He rolls his screen past it so he doesn't have to consider what he hates. But the sinister voice of sin whispers in his ear, telling him that he will gain a wonderful pleasure if he simply rolls back the screen and makes one simple click of the mouse. Christensen says sin is deceiving him, causing him to think that this is what is in his best interest, even though his conscience tells him otherwise. This contrary and deceptive force wields such power that Paul exclaims, It is no longer I who do it, but but sin that dwells within me. Paul's identity as a new creation in Christ is not the source of such choices. Rather, the remaining vestiges of sin left by the old nature continue to make their dreaded presence known. That's the end of the quote. If you go back to the very first message I gave on James 1, 13-15, you might recall that I said that while we have many conflicting desires, at the end of the day, we'll always do what we want to do. We'll always do what's most appealing to us. Well, what is it that feeds our sinful flesh so that we follow after its desires rather than the holy desires granted to us by the Spirit? It's lies. False information. We pursue sin because we think it's better for us. We find it most appealing. And we do that whenever we believe the lies that temptation promise us. This is how our will is steered by the sinful flesh, through the appeal of temptation's lies. Conversely, the indwelling spirit directs our will by convicting us of the truth of God's word. Once again, I said last week that Peter tells us that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Listen again to the full statement. He says, 2 Peter 3, 1-4, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, through what? Through the precious and very great promises. He says, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We become partakers of the divine nature through the promises of the gospel. This is why Peter makes his list of virtues. He begins it by saying, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Obedience starts with faith. Again, I noted noted last week, Hebrews 11 says that it's impossible to please God without believing, number one, that God exists, and number two, that He rewards those who seek Him. This is one of the reasons why it's impossible for unbelievers to obey God. They cannot obey because they do not believe. And true obedience is derived from faith. 
The will is directed by faith when the Spirit convicts us of the truthfulness of God's Word and believing the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt makes obedience appealing in our eyes. I said last week that you always have the ability to obey. And you do in the sense that you have the ability to believe. When the Holy Spirit made you alive, He granted you faith. And now through that faith, you can obey. You never have to sin. But at the same time, you have a principle working in you that's dragging you away into sin against the inclinations of your inner man through the use of temptation's lies. And when temptation's lies are numerous enough and compelling enough, you will sin. Your will will be taken captive and you will sin. Now, you won't sin against your will, even though it will feel like it. Instead, your will will be taken captive by the sinful flesh and directed to serve its purposes rather than God's. So it's still you that's doing it. But you're doing it under the compulsion of your sinful nature. Again, the flesh does this through the power of deception. Now, the reason why this is a problem is because you were born with a fallen mind And in the the midst of a world saturated with lies. In other words, not only do you still possess a, a nature that's inclined towards sin, in addition to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but there's also ample fuel to inflame your sinful desires. This is the other reason why you won't be perfect this side of heaven. It's not only because you possess a sin nature, it's also because you lack the knowledge that works to dispel the persuasive power of temptation. So then, question number two. Where does the sovereignty of God come into play in this? We've already talked about why you won't be perfect this side of heaven. Now, where does the sovereignty of God come into play in all this? I said earlier that you have to point your friend to grace. You need to demonstrate that sanctification isn't just something they do, but something that God does in them. If you're going to keep from crushing them under the burden of self-righteousness. I also said last week that your relationship with God could be different today than what it is, and that it's not because of the choices you've made. And that nothing in that statement contradicts the sovereignty of God. So where does the sovereignty of God come into play in the sanctification process? Well, once we understand this relationship between deception and the power of the flesh, I think we can see that it comes to play in in a couple of different ways. First, You can't control what truth you're exposed to. God can, and He does. Go back to that phrase one more time, that phrase, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Do you realize that there are people around the world who die every day without ever once hearing the gospel? Not only are their hearts enslaved to sin, but their heart has been so effective in cutting them off from the truth that they couldn't find God if they wanted to. They're blind, completely and utterly blind to the truth, the one truth that could save them. So tell me, what control do they have on their salvation? If that's their state, how are they going to be saved? Are they going to ascend into the heavens to find God? No, they can't. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. God must send someone to them first, and apart from that kind of intervention, they're completely and utterly hopeless. And you should know, because you were once that way. 
You too were once estranged from God, alienated because of the ignorance that was in you, but what changed? Someone came and told you about your ignorance. They informed you of your darkness, and they shared Christ with you. You didn't choose that. I mean, you, didn't, you probably didn't even know you were not saved until someone came and told you. Someone came and told you about your ignorance. They informed you of your darkness as they shared Christ with you. Again, you didn't choose that. Even even if at some point you became spiritually curious and started investigating various religions because you wanted to know what the truth was, it still required someone in some way telling you about the gospel in order for you to hear it. You don't come up with that idea on your own. Someone has to tell you. If you grew up in a Christian home, that may be harder to grasp because you've been familiar with the gospel since your youth. But think about it. Other children are born into pagan families who never hear the gospel. You weren't. Is that your doing? No, that's the grace of God in your life. That's the way it works in salvation, and that's the way it works in sanctification, too. If I could put it this way, guys, you don't know what you don't know. That's the whole point. You don't know it. You're ignorant of it. So how are you supposed to, spe- to seek out the truth that you don't know exists yet? You can't. God has to send it to you by His grace. So, as you can imagine, guys, I, I read books, okay, as a pastor, that's what I do, but do you realize I don't really know what's in the content of those books until I read them? There have been books that I've picked up and read before, and, they, and they've totally transformed my life spiritually. Like, there's huge leaps and bounds growth of sanctification because of what I've read in those books. But I didn't realize that that would happen when I picked those books up. I didn't choose that particular transformation. I couldn't because I didn't realize what the book was going to say. It was only after I read that I came to realize how important the content of that book was. So can I claim credit for that? Can I say that I did that? Not really. I may have played a role in pursuing spiritual growth through reading, but the end result wasn't really my choice because I didn't know what I was getting into. So the only place where I can assign credit is to God. That's God sovereignly acting in my life to put in my hands the truths that have enabled my faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. I look back on my life in Christ and I can tell you, I feel like a spiritual one percenter. Like, I'm just incredibly rich in terms of the truth that's been shared with me. I've been exposed to an abundance of sound teaching from day one in my faith, and it's made an impact on my walk in Christ. Can I claim credit for that? Absolutely not. I look back, for instance, on on the starting point of it all when I began to attend Community Bible Church in Nashville, and there were so many factors in that that were outside of my control. I didn't choose the city I would be saved in, for instance, or that CBC would be within a 30-minute drive of my home. And when I started to attend the church, I most certainly didn't realize that I was what I was choosing when I began to attend. In fact, I was trying to avoid the very doctrine that they taught, and I ended up there anyways. That's all the work of God in my life. Again, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. But God was gracious to expose me to the truth I needed to grow. This is why spiritual pride is such an offensive concept. Listen, Christian, do you, do you perhaps know more than other Christians around you? 
Do you perhaps even see them performing sins that you know how to defeat? If so, then you need to get on your knees and thank God for the grace He's shown you in your life. Because that's the only difference between you and them. You better not go around shaking your head in disgust when you see your brothers and sisters in error. The only difference between you and them is that God has been gracious to show you things that perhaps they haven't got to see yet. The better response will be to go and tell them what you've learned and try to share with them the same things that God has shared with you. This is the first way that God sovereignly orchestrates our sanctification by directing the kind of spiritual truth that we're exposed to. And then second, He sovereignly convicts you of the truths that you're exposed to. He sovereignly convicts you of the truths that you're exposed to. And what I mean is this, while spiritual knowledge and understanding are key in the sanctification process, both in the sense that you cannot do what you do not know to do, and in the sense that the Spirit transforms your desires and shapes your will through the conviction of spiritual truth, while that's all true, at the same time, you can't necessarily control the, de- the, the degree to which that truth convicts you and changes your desires. Uh, take evangelism, for example. Uh, two people can be in the same room, hear the same gospel, and the one responds and the other doesn't. Why not? I mean, you could say that there's a whole host of, of background knowledge that's going in to skew which way each of them see the gospel, and that'd be true, but at the end of the day, the Scripture tells us that they'd both be unable to respond apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life. The one who believes and the other doesn't, it's because it isn't mere knowledge that saves. But the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with the proclamation of the Word in order to bring conviction upon the soul and produce faith. And it's the same with sanctification. Again, you see it occur in front of you all the time. There are people who you know possess a ton of spiritual knowledge and yet struggle to obey. And then there are some who have hardly any knowledge at all who still faithfully do practically everything they do happen to know to do. How do you explain that? Why is it some Christians seem to grow by leaps and bounds while others seem to creep along at a snail's pace even when they're exposed to the same preaching and the same doctrine? I think you have to say that a lot of it goes back to the work of the Holy Spirit. God happens to give some a greater measure of faith so they can glorify Him in one way, and then He gives to others a lesser measure so that they can glorify His name in another. And I think in order to get this, you have to grasp this point. You're not here, Christian, you're not here for you anymore. You don't exist on this planet for your purposes. You live here for God's purposes. And what God means to do right now is to make His name known throughout the earth through His people. That may mean that He wishes to display His redeeming power in one Christian by hurrying their sanctification along at a rapid pace. While at the other, in another, he means to display his long-suffering and grace as he patiently bears with the struggling Christian. And just to be clear, there's no unfairness in this. After all, as James points out here in chapter 1, God is not forcing either Christian to sin. Again, I said last week that your fellowship with God could be better than it is, and it's not because of choices you've made, and that nothing about that undermines the idea of God's sovereignty. The reason is because, as James points out here in chapter 1, the reason why you sin is because of your own desires. 
So when you neglect God, that's you. When you do happen to turn to God, though, that's the work of God in you. So who's responsible for your lack of sanctification? You are. And who's responsible for your progress in sanctification? God is. He gets all the credit for your progress while you're responsible for your sin. And that's because whenever you're convicted and turn to God and take steps towards Him, that's the result of the Spirit's work in you. In other words, sanctification truly is a work of grace. This means that God is not obligated to give either Christian any measure of His grace whatsoever, for then it wouldn't be grace anymore. No, He has mercy on whom He will, and He hardens whom He will, and He does it all for His glory. Romans 9. And at the end of the day, I want to be very clear at this, at the end of the day, the Christian has nothing to complain about in any of that. Because when the race is over, both the laborer who does the more work and the one who does the least will essentially get the same reward. I mean, think about that for a minute. If anyone has a reason to complain about this arrangement, it's the Christian who progresses further in their sanctification since they're going to receive essentially the same reward as the one who is less holy. They'll do more work here, and yet they'll inherit the same eternal life, the same kingdom as their brothers and sister who who struggle with sin. I mean, that could be kind of frustrating. And yes, I know the Scripture indicates that there will be some difference in reward depending on what a person does in this life. I don't have time to get into all that. Without getting into the specifics of that right now, I'll simply point out that even then, the joy that each experiences will not be fundamentally different. One brother will simply display the glory of God differently than the other. Only this time in heaven, just as they did here on earth. So then, going back to your friend. How do you steer through the scylla of frustration and guilt on the one side and the charybdis of hopelessness on the other? This is what I'd tell them. I'd start by telling them that they need to have faith. They need to believe the promises of God. That there is greater joy in obedience and in sin and that God draws near to those who draw near to Him. And then they need to use that faith to pursue the means that God has established to sanctify them. They need to be in the Word. From experience, I'd probably tell them that they should be reading about more than just the sins that they're struggling with, since God sometimes deals with our sin in some unexpected ways. They should be receptive to the challenges that God is placing in their life daily and then seek answers in the Word to address those challenges because God often casts light on our sins through those challenges. And most of all, they need to keep the core message of the Word at the center, and that's the Gospel. They need to keep the promises of the cross ever in front of them, because it's through this message that Christ becomes more appealing than sin. Then they need to be in fellowship with other Christians. They need to be doing the exact thing they decided to do when they asked to meet me for coffee. Because God often brings insight and encouragement through the ministry of other Christians who have been through the same battles that we all fight and and, and who can provide fresh insight from God's Word about how to deal with their sin. That's how the Spirit operates within the church. It's not just in one Christian, it's in all of us. And that may be how He means to bring about conviction in their life. And then finally, they need to pray. 
They need to do precisely what James exhorts us to do back in verse 5. They need to ask God for wisdom. Understanding that he gives generously to all without reproach. But again, when they ask, they have to ask in faith without any doubting. They can't be focused on knowing God and keeping their idols because that's only going to skew the knowledge that God means to give them. As James says, the one who's divided, the one who doubts, is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. He's unstable in all his ways. So they need to ask, and they do need to ask in faith with a wholehearted devotion to Christ. They do these things, and of course they continue to use their faith to direct their actions. They obey indeed on the basis of faith, even if they're having trouble getting their emotions to fall in line with that. And then once they do that, they need to wait. They need to wait. Yes, there is something that they can do to improve their fellowship with God. They can pursue the means that God has established for the dispensation of His grace. And God has promised that when they do this, He will draw near to them. So things will get better so long as they persevere. But they can't entirely control the pace of that progress. It may be that the sinful desires will continue to hound them. In fact, I would expect that the more... The more they seek to put those desires to death, the harder it's going to get, at least for a time, because there's a principle of sin that dwells within them, and it means to fulfill the desires of the flesh. So it's not going to go down quietly. It may also be that their desires simply dissipate overnight, like a bad dream. Maybe quick. At the end of the day, though, they can't control the pace. That's going to occur according to the work of God in them. What they can control is the exercise of faith. And so long as they keep their eyes fixed on the beauty of Christ and on His gospel and on the waves that threaten to destroy them, so long as they direct their mind more on the promises of God than on the deceitfulness of sin, God will draw near to them. Again, I can't say how fast it's going to happen. If I were to follow the cue that James gives us here in verse 12, I'd probably tell them that the fight may not ever cease until the day they die. Because that's how long they're going to have their flesh with them. But it will improve. If only incrementally, it will improve. And at the very least, so long as they persevere in the fight by faith, they will grow closer to God. And just so you know, if it is a slow growth, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned them. There are valuable lessons to learn about the goodness and grace of God that are learned in the ongoing fight against sin. In other words, the process itself is often one of the ways that God draws near to His people. He humbles us as we struggle with our sin. So the day-by-day struggle can, in and of itself, become a means by which they draw near to God and then see His faithfulness in return as He upholds them. And then their desires are changed. Again, God hasn't abandoned them, even if the process is slow. So the fight may continue for a very long time. And just so you know, in fact, that very well may be that this is how God means to glorify His name in them. Just as God was glorified when everything was stripped away from Job, and Job still praised God, it may very well be that God wants to display His sovereign power and salvation, sanctification, through the perseverance of their faith in the midst of their struggle against sin. But at the very least, what they can know is that the battle is only for a short time. And when the battle is over, their master will say to those who persevere in faith, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And he will give them rest. 
And so no matter the struggle, and they do need to struggle. I don't want any of that to be misunderstood in any of this. They do need to struggle. But no matter the struggle, they do have reason for hope. Because one day the fight will be over and God will grant them rest. And so they need to continue to persevere. They need to continue to pursue whatever means God has given them for growth. And then they need to wait. That may be hard to do, to wait. But at its longest, it's only for a season. It won't be forever. There's a day coming when their sin will be finally and totally eradicated. And that's the advice that I give you here this morning as well. Are you struggling to put some sin to death? Are you struggling and, and it feels like there's nothing that you can do about it? If so, then I'd give you the same piece of counsel that Paul gives the Philippians in Philippians 2, 12-13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the responsibility side. That's the side where you pursue God because it is God who is at work in you. That's the part where God draws near and He sovereignly works in you for your sanctification. It's the promise of God's help that drives us to perseverance. So fix your hope on the promises of God. Draw near to God and then trust that as you do that, however fast or slow it may be, He will draw near to you. Let's go ahead and do that now as we close in prayer.